0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Bill Takeshita, and I'll be your host this evening, and we're very, very, very fortunate to have a very, very popular speaker, and her name is Miss Stacia Boyd, and Stacia he is the co-founder and the president of Q Media. And this is an award-winning organization that does some very very special things which allows people who have different vision or hearing or maybe even if they just speak different languages so that they can go to different places, museums and that they are able to experience and understand what they are seeing and what is going on within that exhibit. So tonight, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to listen to Stacia and find out how did she ever come up with such an amazing business plan and what are some of her other particular types of projects that she has in the future. So welcome to the show, Stacia. We really, really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Hello, Dr. Bill, and thank you guys for having me. It's just absolutely delightful to be here.
0: Now, first of all, I would like to know, where are you calling in from? Where do you live?
1: I actually live uh, just outside of Orlando in a little town called Winter Garden. So I am here in the same town with uh, Dan and Leslie Spoon and Sheila Young and some names you guys are probably familiar with.
0: Oh, my gosh. Hey, so you run into Leslie all the time then, huh?
1: (laughs) We we have like a a little lunch gathering from time to time that we all enjoy very much.
0: (laughs) Oh, God, that is great. That is really, really nice. You know, and how did you first get interested in this particular type of a business? Or what was your background from education to be able to do this?
1: Ah, Well, it's a, it was an evolution. Oh, definitely an evolution. So, uh, to give you the, my personal background is, um, I was a, uh, actor and performer and, uh, producer and director, uh, for my early years from say about, you know, 18, 19, 20 on to about, you know, my early thirties. And, uh, About the time I met my husband, he and I, we were, uh, before we were married, obviously, we were always museum people. We liked to go to museums. It was, you know, we had no money, so it was cheap dates and, (laughs) you know, and it didn't (laughs) matter what the museum was. Everything from Alcatraz to the world's biggest ball of string, really don't care. And, uh, but we would always go to all these museums and we just loved it. But we both met, we were working in, in theme parks. I was an actor and he was, um, a sound engineer and sound guy. And, um, one day, uh, shortly after 9-11, um, it was near our, our anniversary in October, and we had gone to a, a, an airplane museum. And my husband knows everything that there ever is to know about World War II aircraft, but this place only had, like, the little gallery cards. And as oh. we're walking through, he's telling me all the stories about these planes, not just, you know, okay, it's got this much of an engine in it, and it's got the wings are this wide. He's telling me, you know, who flew these planes? What theater they were in? What was the Im- impact that they had? Who was this pilot? And, oh and I mean, it was it was incredible. It was, and we were saying, you know, man, what, what this place needs, what this little tiny museum needs, is one of those audio tours, you know, like they have at Alcatraz and like they have at Ellis yeah. Island. And we're like, well, well, who does that? And how hard could it be? So, so that's how we started. <laughs> and that was back in uh, 2002. So we started coming in 2002. Uh, but by our second project, we'd already started working in foreign languages because, you know, that was the next thing. You know, I'm I'm the front-end creative, the writer, director, producer. My husband is the back-end creative, which is the um, recording engineer, editor, um, technologist. And um, and then we have our handful of, of contractors that work with us. Um, and we started with that, moved into foreign languages. And then not many years after that, one time we were contacted by an organization that said, hey, we need audio description equipment. Can you provide that? And I'm like, you need what equipment? I'm, I'm sorry, what? You need- <laughs> I'm like, what? 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 And um, so that was really how we found out about it. And uh, I ended up, long story, sh- a little bit shorter, is um, that year the American Council of the Blind was having their um, annual conference here in Orlando, and that was the first year that the Audio Description Institute, which was um, uh, run by Joel Snyder, uh, was doing his audio description program. So. I took it, I learned it, I, I embraced it, because my my I kind of come at things a little bit different angle. I mean, I got into this not because I'm an advocate for blindness, but because I'm an advocate for museums. And then serving all of those visitors, I don't care, you know, where you are, who you come from, I want to make sure that those stories and that human emotional impact reaches absolutely everyone who walks in the door. And everyone who feels like they're not welcome in the door, I want to make sure that they have a pathway in, that it's accessible to them. So so we've been now doing audio description for about uh, 10 years. Everything from small museums up to Mount Rushmore. Uh, just finished one for Holocaust Museum Houston that Sheila worked with uh, me on. And uh, she also helped us out with the Wright Brothers uh, Museum in Kitty Hawk. And um, that's where we are now. So that's brought us to today.
0: Wow, that is amazing. That is really, really interesting. And, and so may I ask a personal question? Are you visually impaired yourself or is somebody your husband, is he visually impaired?
1: No, neither of us are visually impaired. Um, as a kind of a, a, a side note, my mother in law developed about 15 years ago macular degeneration. And so she has been on a path of, 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 Losing her vision over time, um, and so really, that's the the closest person that we ever had to that. Um, and which actually was kind of interesting because it, it it made quite a challenge in, in a lot of ways. You know, one, it, it for me, the the in one way the the disability is secondary. I'm t- I'm trying to talk to the person and trying to make a a an impactful, emotional. I want people to understand the story and have it reach their heart. Um, and then to make it accessible, trying to learn about the experiences of a blind person, I had to work hard to do it. Um, I I would go to the um, ACB conferences every time I could. I would take the audio description every time I could. And one of the main things I was doing was looking for mentors and for people who could help me and teach me. Um, I found uh, at one year in the, the conference in Vegas, uh, I met the fantastic Jeff Tom and his wonderful wife, Leslie. Um, and they became uh, mentors and, and really gave me insights. And that was the moment I think that I realized that I could do a really good job at what I was doing um, as a sighted person and understanding the interpretive side of audio tours uh, into audio description. But to really get a deeper, deeper understanding of it, it was absolutely crucial that I didn't just have a colleague who was didn't have friends or who, who had lost their vision or had vision problems. I needed to have a relationship, a personal human-human relationship. And that was when I got incredibly lucky and met Dan and Leslie and uh, subsequently Sheila. And then over time, the the numerous people that I now know through the Greater Orlando Council of the Blind and the Florida uh, Council of the Blind.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's really, really amazing. And I'm so glad these are the people that you met because these are people who truly understand low vision or blindness, but they're also just great people. Yeah. When you're with them, you don't think that you're with someone who is low vision or blind or they don't talk about their eyesight all the time. Mm -hmm. They just know how to have a good time. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, and I think that's, that's one of the, and I, I talked about a lot to the clients uh, about this very, very often Um, when we're talking about um talking to their operations staff and to, to the organization itself. I'm like, you know, it's not enough to just say, Oh, well, we want to reach out. We're going to find, you know, the, we call the random blind guy. We're going to find the random blind guy and ask them what they think of our effort. I'm like, no, you have to have somebody that has a real relationship with somebody. I mean, have they had dinner at your house? Have you gone to, have you gone out with them? Have you went to see a movie or to a show? Have you What have you done together as human beings having your life intersect? And again, you don't have to be friends with everybody. You know, there are a lot of assholes in this world, you know, to be quite frank. But there are some incredibly wonderful people and you have to seek them out. And you've got to be able to, to meet people as a fellow human being. That's where I think a lot of my background in arts, especially in the theater, come in because that's what I was trained to do. As a performer and actor, you are taught to listen and to connect and to, to look into the, the, the to, to understand the human humanity behind somebody and what they're saying and what they're doing.
0: You know, by the way, a little bit off topic, but I'm just really fascinated about your story and that you were a producer and a director and an actress. What are some of the films or programs that you, you worked on? Is there anything that... We might know, and we might go and look for you in.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) in in the film world, the height of my fame, um, I was in. I was in a B movie that starred Engelbert Humperdinck really? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> the height of my film work, um, and I did a lot of industrial uh, industrial work, which basically is training film. so I did that. Um, that was good money, but no, most of my work I like, I was a stage actress, um, which, as anybody who would ever know, that is not the highest paying work in the world, so I would do touring shows of children's theater. I did um, improv comedy troupes. There was one here <laughs> in Orlando called Spooth <laughs> Mystery Dinner Theater, so I was Both, you know, an actor, and I was supposedly funny at it at the same time. Um, And then my main source of income for many years was I was an actor at Universal Studios. Um, I worked for Nickelodeon Studios. I was one of their live game show hosts for the kids. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Then I worked at the Terminator Venue. I was the very evil character named Kimberly. So, if anyone's ever gone to (laughs) Universal and you remember the, you went to the Terminator Venue. The woman that got killed about five minutes in every show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh! Hey, but then I bet you you also sing because you you have a beautiful voice and it's so clear and so powerful. So you do you, so- you
1: sing? I I did I did sing for a lot of years yes um, and now I still sing for fun but uh, I I don't sing on stage so much anymore I, I travel too much and that's actually one of the the challenges because with our work we have to go to the museums to work with them and being able to commit to a, a theater show is just is very difficult because if the client calls and says we need you here a week from Tuesday well guess oh,
0: what oh <laughs> yeah oh
1: yeah so now, my time now, is but- in the theater now.
0: When when you are doing these uh, recording of these files and such for the, museums, for the museums, are you the person who's actually reading? Would we hear your voice?
1: No, no. Um, I do. I am a absolute uh, proponent of the fact that most act, most people cannot direct themselves, um, and my okay. role is more of the, the as the writer and the director is to deliver that client's vision. So as the person who wrote the text, I know what it's supposed to say. I know what it's supposed to sound like. And I want to hire professional voice talent because voice talent has one job in every project, and that's to deliver the emotional goal of whatever that project is. And so I can't do it. And, and, I, and I I do think that, you know, there are a lot of... Um, uh, in the voiceover or voice describers who do voice their own work, and um, and for those guys, I'm like more power to you But <laughs> I ain't got that kind of talent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I really am impressed. I'm very, very impressed. You know. Well, um, when when you first started, how did you and your husband start financially? I would imagine there was a lot of equipment that you had to invest in and you had to then also hire talent to be able to assist you. Right?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's weird. I mean, back in in, around the the time that we started the company in 2002, that was really when the the digital revolution and the computer was really changing the game up until the mid nineties, you had to have a professional studio, lots of gear out in the world. um, And they were very expensive places to go. Um, but then early 2000s is when home recording equipment, be able to set up your own studio in your house. And so we actually, we have a, a place, as you can see behind me, this is my, my office. Um, I'm sitting in a, 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 fairly open room with, um, bookshelves behind me and, uh, and a, a large space. We have a garage apartment. And so what we did was we converted our garage apartment to our studio and we had a booth set up and we started and we put our, our, our system together, but no, we bootstrapped it. I mean, when we started our company, I quit my job at Universal. Mike continued te- uh, working at Universal, but he was also teaching at our local community college. He was also a musician playing in a band, and he was also working on the project booked. So this man <laughs> had four jobs <laughs> for two and a half, three years until we finally had reached the point where we felt like, okay, it's, it's now time. Um, and he's shedding a job, you know, a job a year. He was able to like quit a job a year, um, a- until we were able to start the business. And since then, we have been a true 24-7 couple. For the past 16 years, and we've had. Oh
0: a- my gosh! Yeah. that's great. That yeah, this is whole co- we
1: were joking about the, the COVID 19 shutdown. We were saying, you know, we've been training for this our entire lives. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I also have to comment though. Your home studio, it really sounds very good. You know, I don't hear a lot of background noise or anything echoing and. You know, it sounds very, very clear.
1: Well, and that's one of the things about being married to an audio engineer—the um, his knowledge about just how to put together the basics. So, for people putting together home studios and doing work right now, because a, a lot of museums are working very hard right now to essentially create their own production facilities in house, and there are a lot of things so that, that are are very basic. That if you have the knowledge, you can do incredible work. Um, one of like the uh, here's an example of one of them. The best home recording space for anyone who's doing home recording is inside a walk-in closet. Put your microphone in a walk-in closet, take your shoes off, take your jewelry off, put your little light in there, and that is the best recording studio. Um, little things like that. And that's where, you know, I, I think going back to what we were saying earlier about having to have a, a person who's a professional to to bring some knowledge to something it's important to have people, um, enjoy your work. And I, and I think, and I'm always very, very grateful and very appreciative of that. Um, I think it's also very important to make sure that you have folks on the front end who actually know what they're doing and not saying, Hey kids, let's put on a play. Um, the writing matters. The, uh, audio description writing matters. It's different than regular script writing. Having writing a good script matters. Knowing how to put together the sounds and the music and the uh, all of these different things, it all matters. And it's the difference between something being, oh, okay, that was nice. Thank you so much. I appreciate the effort. To something where it is so good you don't even notice the quality. Oh, okay. Wow. And, and Stacey, where do you
0: typically find the people who have that type of knowledge to be able to write? Each card, for example, uh, for the museum.
1: Um, well, for what we do, we're writing. Uh, we're writing basically two different types of, of audio tours: the interpretive tour, which is the basic tour that everybody gets when they go to a muse- museum. And this is actually one of the things I'm, I'm so glad I'm talking to you guys because I, I, I'm. It's it's always one of these like things that's just under my skin just a little bit. There's a difference between an audio tour and an audio-described tour. An audio tour is basically. The museum talking to all of their visitors. You know, if I could speak, say something personally to every visitor that walked in my door, this is what I wanted to say. It's the stories. It's the curators. It's the the background. It's the amazing stuff. The audio described tour is taking that and the exhibits and the films and the videos and the wayfinding and making it accessible verbally to people who cannot see or have trouble seeing. So those are basically two different types of writing, and um, where I find those folks is like for it's not easy to find a good uh, an audio description writer, especially one that does things um, the way I like to see them done. Because again, my background is production, not Mm -hmm. necessarily accessibility. So it's not advocacy writing. It has to be a high level of it. It's not enough to be good accessible writing. It has to be good emotional writing too. It just has to. Um so those folks I find good writers and then I train them to write audio description for me. And then after that, if I have if they are gonna work out, then if I can I try to send them to um either Joel's course, so I've taken a couple of my writers there because I want them to get someone's point of view other than just mine. Um I think that's critically important. Um and I also think it's important to be able to have a, a wide range of experience because otherwise I have a tendency to like so many extremely talented people think that their way is the best way all day every day. So having having somebody else who can kind of step up and go, "You know, maybe we could do it some other way and it would be better." is important.
0: Wow, that's a, that's a lot of work then. It would be very 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 time consuming to find people who are knowledgeable in these different topics depending on which museum you go to, right? Yeah.
1: Well, and again, I was you know, I don't need people knowledgeable in the topics. I need people knowledgeable of writing. The museums have the folks who are knowledgeable in the topics. but what brings me to the important thing for audio description is I feel very strongly about having somebody who ha- is blind or has low vision being a consultant with me on the front end of the writing project for the audio described tour. Um, uh, I mentioned Sheila earlier and uh For example, when we were working on the audio described tour for the Wright Brothers National Memorial, that was the first project she came to, uh, came with me on. When I, I write, I go up, I write my first draft of the script. And this is a long script. This thing's about two hours long. And actually, for those of you who are doing the American Council of the Blind's uh, conference this year, they're going to be doing ACB radio, and they're going to have a bunch of audio-described tours. and are just going to kind of play for folks. We, we're gonna, that's one of the ones that we are that is available to hear. But it's about two hours worth of content. This is not, not a short experience. Um, but Sheila went back up with me, and we, and there was the two of us and the client. And the client's interpretive rep. And we went through and I would read my draft aloud and Sheila would say, "Okay, yeah, I understood that. No, that doesn't make sense. Stacia, there's a better way to do this. Um, Have you thought about X? You don't need to say it that way. So she was able to put that real personal experience into my script and make it better. Um Also, because she was there, uh, there were times when we're talking to the client, and these are intelligent, I mean these are incredibly uh, national parks people, these folks want to do good work and they really want to serve the um, the blind community. Um, but there were times when if I would have said something to them saying, you know, for example, it, it, oh well, here's one, um, they wanted people to walk through the museum in a certain order and did not want them to walk close to the walls. And Sheila said, that's silly. I can find. I have a cane. I can find my way around a lot easier if you just say, "Follow the wall on my right." Yeah, she, yeah. So, but when she says that, that's authority. If I say that, it sounds like I'm being lazy. So, <laughs> so <laughs> having that 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 authentic voice and that authentic presence on the front end planning phase is so much more important to me than to only have the user experience on the back end where somebody's called in and said, hey, we made this audio described tour for you guys. What do you think? And the consumers go, hey, thank you. That was awesome. I really appreciate it. After it's too late to fix something if it's wrong.
0: Yeah, but that's it. There's certain things that only the person who is either blind or, or low vision would know. Uh, yeah. A person who has even studied about low vision and blindness,
2: they may not
0: be aware of certain little things like that. Right. So I, I think you, it's
1: you about, I'm, I'm sorry, not, i mean, to interrupt. I, I said that you talk about finding people, the number one quality that I have to find in people is the ability to know that you, to, it's humility. To know that, you know, if you're on a team of creative people, you're not necessarily the smartest person in the room. You're one of the smart people in the room. And somebody there is saying something you need to know that's important. And you might not know what that is right away. And I think that that is this this in, It's a missing element right now, I think, in a lot of audio description. It's like you, in order to be an audio describer, you have to be able to see as far as to be able to, to write scripts like I do in the museum industry. um so you can't have a fully blind audio description writer. At the same time, if you have only a sighted audio description writer, I think you're missing you're missing an incredible opportunity to provide the absolute best service that you can.
0: Wow. You know, to me, this is just so fantastic to know that this is available because I used to love to go to museums. And then as I uh, started to lose my vision... My wife and I, we would still go to different places. And when we went to these museums, I felt bad asking her to read everything for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And she goes, well, what do you want me to read? Just point out which sign you want me to read. <laughs> and, and and that really doesn't work either because I really have no clue what any words are on the sign. Right. And I, and I, and I really don't want her to have to read all those for me, but I really want to know what it says on all of those signs.
3: Right. You know? Well, going
1: uh, back to going back to um, the the mentors, and one of the things I learned in Vegas, and I don't remember who the person was who said this, but they had a uh, they were people who were there to learn to do audio description. Um, volunteers from the community said, "We'll be your mentor while you're here," and they did a, a thing up front where they asked the mentors to say to people what does audio description mean to you? And one gentleman, uh, what he he said, he's like, what you have to understand is it doesn't make, you know, exhibit success. He's like, I'm a um, a movie guy. I want to go, and I'm so great to to go to the movies and hear audio description. My wife is a museum person. He's like, but when we would go to museums for her, she would spend her time telling me what was going on. And so now her wonderful experience is being ruined by, not ruined, but, you know, it's, but, but now she's become my staff, not my date. And he said, you've given me date night back. So I can go on a date and my wife is not my assistant. She is my date. We are there as husband and wife enjoying ourselves like absolutely everyone else who's gone to that museum event. Um, I I think that's the, the component that I feel very strongly about when it comes to museums is that people should be able to go as who they are as husband, as wife, as father, as son, as uh, as any other family, and be able to take something away from that that's meaningful.
0: Yes, that's so true. No. Now, um, in general, generally speaking, do most employees at a museum know what we would be talking about if we said, "Do you, do you have audio description? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think I think m- most at the mid level and above. I mean, if they're if they're uh, high enough in the organization that they're going to conferences, I would say absolutely. Um, accessibility is a huge conversation in the museum community. Um, any state park, national park, any interpretive park ranger. Quick answer: Absolutely, they would know. Um, most la- mid size to larger museums. Absolutely, they would know. Sometimes smaller museums, the front end people might not know, but they'll, but somebody there does. Um, and that's actually an important part of advocacy. Um, because a lot of times if someone, people aren't going to museums because so many times in the past, there's been nothing there for them. You know, it's like, well, like I said, it's not, not that interesting. They'd like to, maybe kind of like everybody else, but Yeah. yeah, to call up and say, I want audio description and then have the person on the other end of the phone go, I'm sorry, what? It's disheartening, it's demoralizing, and it's exhausting.
0: And so. Is there a particular, uh, excuse me, is there a particular department or a particular person at a museum that we should ask for when we call a museum to see if they do have it?
1: Yes, there would be three titles of people. Uh, The first one is the access coordinator. And the reason the access coordinator is important is if it is in any way a state, national, governmental operated entity, they're required to have one. And the access coordinator is part of the um, Section 504 of the Civil Rights, um, of excuse me, of the uh, the which I'm blanking on the name of this particular law, but I will think of it in a minute. Section 504, Um, but it's the EDA. Yes, thank you. So they have a, um, so that's the first one. The second one would be the director of operations. Operations is the person who oversees the front of house, the people who, the, the tour guides, the um, the staff that takes the tickets, the, the folks that's to show you around. So the director of operations would be number two. And number three is the CEO or the executive director.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yes.
1: But one of the ways to tell sometimes is like, if you, most people were, and Le, Sheila and Leslie, I think, I think Sheila and I were having this conversation about, you know, what's, what's the front of the museum? What, what do they consider their entrance? And most museums consider their website the beginning of the experience. And so one of the things that is kind of a considered a best practice is how easy is it to find the accessibility tab on the website? And we always advise people to have it somewhere right up front in the, up, in the center. But most of them will have it somewhere. And if you go to the website and it's easily accessible and you can find that accessibility tab, call whatever name and phone number is right there. Um, Ask them for an audio-described tour. If they don't have it, ask them why not. <laughs> um, that's, that's number one. Uh, the answer, a lot of times, is going to be if they, hopefully, if they're really on the ball, it's going to be part of their accessibility plan, part of a five-year plan um, to add it, to get it provided. Uh, ask them what they do have because that's you have to have something, and um, and just start there. We talk a lot about accessibility and audio description at um, the, the national conferences and the regional museum conferences. Uh, I'm, I'm presenting sessions on it this year. I just did one at, at Texas, um, and Sheila, Dan, Leslie, and um, Denise Decker were part of my panel for that one, which was a, a wonderful panel.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that should say.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and just found out that we were accepted for the National Association of Interpretation, which is the folks that are the National Park Service. So I think we're going to be doing, actually I need to let Sheila, uh, Sheila know that. <laughs> I should Ooh. probably let Anne you know that too, Leslie. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, that's, those are getting those, the, the word out to those folks is important.
0: Gosh, that is fantastic. You know, one of the questions that I received through email in preparation for this, they wanted to make certain that I asked this question to you, is what are the museums in Florida that have your services?
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Well, several of them have audio tours. Um, uh, and I do, but just so you guys know, um, I think there are a few people with their hands raised, uh, but, but I'm not the one running those. I'm going to let Robert and, and those guys handle all of that. Um, uh, so some of the ones, well, we did an audio describe, audio describe tour in Florida. One of the biggest ones we ever did and probably one of my mo- most proudest moments is for Kennedy Space Center. Um, they have an amazing audio describe tour. Um, unfortunately, I have also heard from po- folks who've gone over there to try and take it, sometimes they don't have the most amazing front of house staff. Um,
4: oh.
1: <laughs> I've such a thing, and the reason for that is because at that particular attraction, the people who run the tickets and the people who run the audio tour and the audio described tour are two different departments that don't always know what uh, the other one's doing. But Kennedy Space Center has a really good one. Um, absolutely and we actually did that one back in 2012 it's been in a long time it's a it's a really good uh, program um, but it's built on old technology so it's uh not as advanced as some of the new ones um where else in florida's got audio description in florida not as many people it's kind of hard to get hired in your own hometown um mm-hmm. We've got, let's see, places that we have done, uh, audio describe work around the nation. Um, we did one for the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. The,
0: uh, wow, Mel- I, I read, I read that. Yeah, you did that. That must have really been a lot of work. Wow.
1: <laughs> Let me tell ya. Oh, my gosh. The whole thing is one gigantic <laughs> visual. <laughs> but the museum itself was amazing. And this staff was really committed to accessibility. And they, they wanted this to be the most comprehensive um, uh, audio described tour that we had possibly put together. And we were working with a technology provider that was working very hard. Um, there's a company called OnSell, um, and they're out of Rochester, New York. They were the, the app provider. And so, kind of going back to like this the thing about audio description of museums, it's not just being able, as the describer, to write the description. You have to understand how the technology is going to work so you can use it to its best advantage. So, for example, the audio description of the exhibits and the films, that's that's interpretative, interpretive, it's beautiful, it's magical, it's all of that wonderful stuff. But the direction from spot to spot: the move forward, follow the aisle to the left, and then go forward about twenty feet until you come to a wall and then stop. That's just text, so the screen reader reads that. We don't need to have, you know, we don't need to be paying voice talent to read forty minutes worth of turn left, turn right. So understanding how to to design a program is important. Also, in museums, something else that, and we've had this on um, Wright Brothers as well. Museums actually encompass, they have more than just panel text and exhibits. They have films. They have videos. They have interpretive, um, tactiles. They have touch screen kiosks. All of these things are part of that experience. And so some technology, for example, at Wright Brothers, you walk into the, the main room where the right flyer is and there's this gigantic video that's playing overhead that everybody that walks in can see and it's a massive thing a lot of money time and effort was put into this this technology syncs up with it and it starts playing it automatically when the person moves into the correct zone
0: oh my goodness
1: other sections though it just beeps to let the person know that um content is available here and then here's the the titles of the four tracks that would be available that are pertinent to this location so the visitor then has um agency they can decide what they want to listen to how much how little because otherwise if you can imagine going to some of these museums if somebody's trying to read every word of panel text to you you could be held hostage for six hours
0: (laughs) yeah that's right yeah that's right uh, hey, let's go ahead and let's let's take a couple of these questions. I think that you said there's some people who have their hands up.
1: Yeah, I see Sheila Young. Hi, Sheila. And I see Wesley Brown, and I see a number of 407 number. So I'm going to let somebody else run those. Robert, is that you? <laughs> Hi, Robert. Thank Hi, you. Hi, honey. Hi, Stacia. Hi, Sheila. Uh- I have heard my name a few times. (laughs) Love, use with love. Sheila, you're a
2: star. (laughs) Yeah, not. Um, I will tell you, Robert,
1: the experience I had doing the Wright Brothers and the Holocaust Museum Mm. were two of the
4: most amazing experiences, Stacia her professionalism is amazing and people have no idea what goes into the audio description of museums and stacia
2: is by far the most professional so i want to thank stacia for what she is doing
1: thank you sheila the check's in the mail you're the best <laughs> Darn, I didn't know I was getting paid Just, Just kickbacks, quiet, quiet. <laughs> <All right. laughs>
5: Robert, who's next? Wesley, go ahead, Wesley. On a description for a museum, so is that good to describe it? Does sound like where you can. Uh, Go to a museum, they loan you a gadget, and you can walk to the museum and punch and code whatever, and they have this gadget read off descriptions of the different pieces, exhibits to you, if that's what this is all about?
1: Yes, yeah, mostly, yeah. Um... Up and there is a hand being handed out the gadget, and there are a lot of decent gadgets out there. The latest technology is having it on your own, downloading an app of some sort or having it accessible that way uh, for two reasons. Um, obviously, right now with COVID, folks don't want to hand things out and take them back. Um, people are more open to using their own phones for their, their experiences. Um, the thing that the gadgets do, though, is those are the items that so far have been technologically a bit able to do things that I was just talking about, like the audio syncing. So you would hear the description synced with a film or a video, or interactive kiosk, or something like that.
5: Okay, because you know, like you're locally, we have an art museum. I think it's it's the Portland Art Museum. I think it's kind of famous. I guess I mean people might have. Heard about it. It's been uh, around for over 20, well, over 100 years.
1: You, where's, where's local? What's that? Where are you? Where's local to you?
5: Portland, Oregon.
1: Ah, oh, Portland, Oregon. Thank you, yes.
5: And I think the Portland Art Museum is kind of famous, you know, well established museum. It's been over 100 years. Fact, I think there's like a 1935 Otis elevator in it, or a couple of, I think there's a freighter too. But how they do it is that every once in a while they have these Portland accessible museum tours mm-hmm. where they have a group of the docents, you know, they, they'd be like a certain time and you, you would get an email that invites you and you would like get a new response, say, want to go. And then I only have a slot for like slots for like around 10 people or so. So you got to like jump on it to have a yeah. chance to get in. And then what they do is they would set up chairs around an exhibit or a couple of ex- exhibits, art pieces. And then, you know, you come in there, and then they do a live description of the piece to you. You know, somebody, when a those would describe it live to you. Yeah. And then they have certain things to handle, like samples of the piece to let you touch, or smaller art work that would be passed around. And they also have patch with images concerning the work, mm-hmm. and then sometimes they'll let us glove up with rubber gloves and go up and then tactfully, you know, examine the work ourselves. Yeah, and that's kind of how they do it. But the thing is, you know, I go, but I only do like a couple pieces, right? And then, and then once that's done, a lot of times afterwards, I kind of like to take advantage of my money's worth since I'm already in the museum and I go around and I. Look at the other, you know, uh, exhibits and works in the museum, and I, I kind of have my favorite areas. I kind of like to go. I like to check out the modern art so- art area. Right. But the thing is, they have these like these little cards on the wall or next to the, to the pieces that describes and give information like the artist's name, when it was made, etc. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of pain for me, you know, deal with having to mega get out of my phone and magnify each of those things or something. To read them, and it'd be nice if I, you know, could have something or an app I like, could go through and and hear about these, you know, get those little, at least that little copy, exhibit copy, but yeah. that's how my art museum, in town in in, in Portland, does it, and also I asked for the science museum. I used to volunteer there, but that's like years since I've been in the science museum. But I think they don't have anything. Because one time when I was volunteering, they suggested doing Braille, and they say, oh, they don't want Braille on the exhibits because it doesn't look too good. And I suggested like a small Braille tab and then having a book that could be checked out, a Braille book that had all the exhibit copies in it with like these, uh, you know, numbers and orders that, you know, blind patrons could like look up as they uh, go to the exhibits and, and there'd be like a little Braille tag or little girl peas with the ID number, but I didn't know if they ever got going, but that's no. playing see in my area.
1: So but uh, China,
5: I'm sorry? There's a Chinese garden. Right. One time I went to a buddy of mine, and they I guess they did have audio described tour, which was a long, you know, elongated, I may say, wand-like device, but it had like a keypad on it, and there's like numbers on the exhibits, and it punched a number on this thing, and it would do an audio playback for you. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think I look at it as, you know, in addition to, not instead of. I I think just like the broader community, there are people who absolutely don't like equipments or machines. They want a live tour with a real person. They love docents. They really enjoy that personal interaction. And then there are also people who really, you know, find docents irritating and don't like them. And they want to be able to go through and do their own thing at their own pace. And so rather than having every visitor come in saying, Oh my gosh, you must take the dose of tour. Oh my gosh, you get, you have to wander around by yourself. They offered both of them to their visitors. I think that same thing is important to offer to the blind community because just like everybody else, maybe you want to have that personal one on one and you're willing to wait the two weeks to sign up for something in advance with a person. But maybe your family's in town and they say, Hey, what do you want to do this afternoon? Gee, let's go over to the art museum. Impromptu, like other people do. They've got a great exhibit and you want to go to walk in and have it, an, an experience option. So that's probably, I think when it comes to advocacy, I would say that what I try and encourage people to do is to say, to not say, okay, it has to be this thing. If you don't have an audio tour, you're not accessible. An audio described tour, you're not accessible. It's like, well, what do you have? Do you, do you have for me as a person who wants a broad experience, how can I, how can I get that? Do you have an audio described tour? Do you have a touch tour? Do you have a um, Braille? Do you have a booklet? Do you have, what do you have? And if the organization comes back with, golly gee, we don't really have much, well, then they need to work on that. But if they come back and they've got three or four things that that they're already doing and two more that are in the works, that's an organization that's taking their responsibility seriously. And they should be rewarded with your time, your, your uh, efforts, your money, your um, attention, your, your attendance. And I think that's a, an important thing to look at. Hey, thank you, Wesley.
0: Go ahead, Leslie. Stacia, oh, sorry. Stacia, uh, I'd like to ask you a question before we let Leslie get on here. Excuse me, Leslie. That's fine. But who pays for this? Is this paid by the city budget or the state or is it coming out of the federal government?
1: It depends. Um, for, so for example, National Park Service, city budgets, things, if it's a government entity, obviously a government is paying for it somehow. Um, but for private nonprofits, a lot of times those will be grant funded. They could be, um, uh, donor funded. Uh, they might come out of an operations budget. They might be a situation like, for example, Holocaust Museum Houston. They just did a major redesign where they basically added three stories to their building and expanded that. And as part of that that redesign, they wanted it to be as accessible as possible. So it was part of that, you know, exhibit design budget, um, and which is incredibly important to make sure that your accessibility for your blind and low vision uh, visitors is planned for at the beginning the same way you plan for the ramps. And the handholds and, you know, the automatic door openers and all of the tiny little things that, you know, are, are there. They're planned for in the, in the blueprints, you know, audio descriptions yeah. should be planned for in the exhibit design as well. Uh, right now, a lot of times it's, it's kind of an add-on afterthought. Everything's installed. Oh gosh, yes, we need to do the audio description. Um, which when that happens, that's better than not doing it at all but it also means that some things don't get done because it's so expensive to do it later if they would have planned it on the front end it's pennies on the dollar but when you try to add it later it's like okay you've got to now go back in and retrofit your entire video film screen kiosk thing to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars right
0: yes uh leslie go right ahead leslie
1: Thank you, Dr.
2: Bill, and thank you, Stacia. This has been wonderful, as usual. Um, I'm missing our lunches, you know, so I heard my name a couple times, so I wanted to chime in and say thank you so, so much for (laughs) what you do. Um, Stacia is just amazing, Dr. Bill. She was um, at our Florida Council of the Blind Convention also as a sponsor to help the Florida Council of the Blind and um, and a panelist, you know. And it's just amazing what we learn from her every time she speaks. I'm just in awe of her. Uh, Dan and I have not been able to go on one with her, but hopefully hopefully in the future we will be. Uh, We've gone with one of her colleagues, um, Martin Wild, with the Tortugas in Key West, Florida, um, through Joel Snyder. So it is really interesting to be on that that end where you're helping them uh, describe it like Sheila has gone to with with Stacia. So um, thank you, Stacia, so, so much. And, And I'm looking forward to listening to the tour. Station on with you know at the convention. So, yes,
1: Mexican feud is at our future. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, good, good. Uh, Robert, next.
4: Okay.
3: Okay, great. I was. Hi, my name is Rachel, and I was like three o seven. That could be also interpreted as three o one. Okay, thank you. <laughs> hi, Statham. <laughs> um, I do that all the time with my low vision. <laughs> um, thank you so much for this talk. I'm really enjoying this. I am in the I am in the Washington D.C. area, and I had um, two really quick questions. Um, I am a low vision person who is studying acting at George Mason University. City. And I was wondering if you have ever hired any voice talent for when, you, um, I guess, once the, the script is already written and uh, you're, you know, now have to go into the sound booth and record it all. I was wondering if you've ever hired uh, low, any low vision blind voice talent for that. And um, if not like, how um, you know, how does people apply to do that? And then the second part is, Have you guys ever worked on any children's museums to provide audio description for them? Because it's really important. I know as a a child with a vision disability, I was always so bored because I could never like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm saying. So I'm thinking like the Baltimore Science Museum or like the Strong's Museum that was at the ACB
1: conference in Rochester. So thank you so much for your time. First of all, Rachel, congratulations on pursuing a life in the arts. I, I gotta tell you I have I love being an actor. I love being an entertainer. I tell people that what I do now is not instead of my life in the arts. It is because of my life in the arts. And uh so that you have a wonderful career and future ahead of you. Um to the practical part of the question about hiring uh voiceover talent uh with low vision, honestly I don't know. Um we have uh I Probably have, not sure. The way we hire is um for talent, uh, and I don't know, are you familiar with any of the uh, voice talent clearinghouses like Voice123 or Voices.com or something of that nature? I haven't really done that part
3: yet. I've just been doing a lot of things on backstage, okay. Uh still during COVID, a lot of their workshops
1: and such. Okay, well, um first of all, if you're going to pursue work and uh, voice talent and voiceover, always Training, 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 training. Um, second of all, get very good with your own equipment. Um, the most important thing is your voice. The second most important thing is being able to record and master your own voice. Um, after that, when it comes to voice talent, because it's a wonderful uh, career path for people who are blind or have low vision, um, because whenever I prepare my scripts, I always make sure that they are prepared to work with screen readers so that somebody gets, so somebody, somebody is blind or low vision and I have, I send them out to people who are blind and low vision, they can use them on their screen readers. Um, it's a very good way to, to earn money as a performer. Um, I don't know that I've ever, I've never put out a casting that says, I need somebody who's blind or have, has low vision. Um, I've always put out, I probably could add to it as like, you know, encouraged to apply. Um, but what, the way I cast talent is we hire the, I put out the audition. By the time the sun goes down, I'll have a hundred auditions in my inbox uh from there my partner weeds out all the technically insufficient ones uh that'll take out about half or more than half of them i'll be left with like 30 or 40 i listen to those 30 or 40 for the the emotional qualities that i'm looking for the vocal qualities that'll narrow it down to about 10 then we will go through it again and say okay who are our top three that i'd be happy with any three and then i send those three to the client so by the time it goes because again talent has one purpose and that's to deliver the emotional goals so that's all i care about um, but uh, in short, I would say that, yes, if you are going to, if you really want to work in this, absolutely put the work into it. You can make a good living.
0: You know, Rachel, I would also like to uh, suggest this as an idea. Maybe that you would be interested in having your own podcast. Mm.
3: And <laughs> that, that would be great. <laughs> you have a really
0: a, a great, powerful, animated voice. Yeah, maybe you want to do a podcast that's really designed for kids to listen to.
3: Yes, thank you. And I've been doing some radio theater with an um, all vision, uh, all low vision blind cast um, these during COVID, so it's been really great. And I, yeah, if you also if you have done anything about the. Children's Museum, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I just, want, I just, I want. I'm sorry, I just really want to say one quick the other thing. The reason why I was asking is because we've been all really trying to be um, advocates for inclusion in the arts, and mm-hmm. so one of the thing is about voiceover work. That um, what I've been hearing from some of the voice, uh, voice actor coaches and things on backstage is that there is hardly any low vision blind actors that
1: do get jobs so that's why i was just asking so thank you so much and thank you for pointing that out to me because i'm going to look into that i am on the i am on a committee that uh, helps the voice one two three group and i'm i'm going to pose that question to them i never have
2: um, station, station, sure. it's yes. Leslie, real quick. I just yes. unmuted myself real quick, so I don't want to, and you know, intervene here. But I believe Joel Snyder has audio described the insect zoo in Washington D.C. You yeah. might want to get in touch with him and make sure about that. But um, she might be able to reach out to him.
1: And Rachel, Rachel Joel Snyder is based out of in, in the D.C. area, isn't he? Leslie, does he Ye- live in D. Yes, D. he is. Yes. Yeah. And I think he offers his audio description course, which is actually for audio description writers. But I think he does. It might be an interesting thing to, if you go at some point, find out. We he's they do a um a conference there. Where is it in Virginia every year, Leslie? There's something in there's something in Virginia almost every year. What? I, I think Joe offers his course uh, every year or every other year at the conference in Virginia. There's something like January or February. It's February. It's with the um, oh yeah legislative seminar. Yeah, and of course in February. Yeah. And that might be interesting too. It's like if you con- if you reach out to him, uh, Rachel, to just attend. Like um, every year when he's done it, he tries to get people, members of the community, to sit in and be part of the class to give insight to the people who are learning to be to do description. And with your background in both arts and in um with low vision you might be a great asset You might be a great person to talk to all
4: right we have a call-in user uh you're unmuted go ahead yes hi uh, thank you stacia and everyone and dr bill i had a really good experience some years ago some sighted friends said that there was going to be a documentary on the history and sociological aspects of the different ethnic groups in Jerusalem, Israel. And they wanted to go see this documentary. And it was in the theater near Griffith Observatory near the city of Los Angeles. And I told them about an hour ahead, we got there, and I told them that I needed, if they had it, some audio description equipment. And they found someone who knew and they actually checked it out, made sure it was working. They worked with me. And I actually got the description for this documentary as we were listening to it.
1: As a live describer?
4: Pardon me? No, it was, it was a, um, they actually made the document, the version of the documentary had description. Fabulous. And I was just I don't I don't go to too many of those because I have an iPhone I can get description in some of the Apple things and also I listen to the Sarah audio movies if I uh, if they have them but it was just so gratifying to go with sighted friends and be able to ask them I'm coming I'm visually impaired do you have audio description and they they found someone who knew what that was and they made sure that it was working and he showed me the gentleman showed me where the buttons were and i don't know to just be able to sit there with my sighted friends while they were watching it and be able to follow it it just added so much to the documentary it was such a rich experience yeah um so that was a really good experience and the The first kind of thing, uh, description I had, and I'm not sure it was particular to the blind, but in the late 90s, my alumni group from college had a Southern California alumni gathering at the Getty Museum. And so I was a bunch of sighted people, and we went up, and here they had a CD player at the time, and you went to where you wanted to have descriptions, and you pushed the CD of that exhibit and oh, they had hundreds of descriptions of all the stuff in these the particular exhibit that I was at. Mm -hmm. And I was just awestruck.
0: Wow, that's great.
4: That I could actually listen to this player and find out about each art piece. Yeah. I don't know, that place was awesome to me. The nice light Light uh, grounds, uh, the the what they used for the flooring uh, or whatever you want to call the tiles, the light the light tiles on the grounds uh, where we, where you'd sit and I don't know. Yeah, it was, great. Those are two really good experiences. However, I have wanted to periodically work with some people on local local venues where I am not too far from L.A. But I wanted to report that. It can be so gratifying to actually have a theater prepared to when you actually step up and say, do you have this?
1: Yeah, it's uh, that human experience that that to be able to be treated like any other member that comes in and to be able to say, I want to I want to experience this this film, I want to experience this exhibit, I want to experience this, and to not have it be treated as if it's some kind of grand inconvenience, but as I, if it's not there, it's like, oh, that's that's my bad, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, we should absolutely have this for you, let me take care of that, the same way you would treat any visitor who walked in your front door, and if you said, you know, hey, we have this great exhibit for everybody except for people who are wearing brown shirts today, that's... Right. Not, that, that's a, I mean, it's, it's an absurd analysis, analysis, but at the same time, I think that's what happens a lot. And once, when I'm able to talk with CEOs and I'm able to talk with these directors of operations and I explain it to them in that system, in, in that, in that way, um, that what they need to train their staff to do, again, there's the basics, you know, don't grab somebody's cane, don't touch their dog, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I said, the first thing is to just be polite. If somebody walks up to your counter, (laughs) say hello to that person. It sounds so simple, but I actually observed it happen when I was in Vegas with Tom and Leslie, or excuse me, Jeff, Tom, and and, and his wife, Leslie. We went to the CSI exhibit, walked up to the front door. Jeff was buying my ticket because he was being so sweet about being a mentor. And he's standing there with his wallet out. And the person at the desk looked at me and said, do they want to go in? And I'm like, He's got his wallet out. Why don't you ask him? I don't. I don't even. What if I didn't know these people? Um, but but you know, the is the the type of of human experience. That's not a that's not an accessibility issue to me so much as that is a human experience. If you did that to any other human being, what is wrong with you?
4: Well, see, that was what I appreciated. Was that my sighted friends left me at the counter to do something and come back, and so I had to step up and actually you know go up there and have someone say hello to me and i had to tell them that this is what i needed and and i was so gratified that even though the first person didn't know exactly what i meant that they found someone who did
0: that's great yep. that's yes. really good we, news
4: we have things another caller. Or... oops things sorry are back. getting better and robert we'll take one more
0: call okay
2: yep okay verlin hello hi verlin hi thank you so much for this program i'm really enjoying it i wanted to know if there's a website that would list all the different places that are available and then perhaps have links to the audible where we could just sit in our homes and listen to the tour
1: well i will tell you this there is one organization that i know that's that's making a really good stab at it and that's the american council of the blinds audio description project and um uh, Sheila or Leslie, do either of you know that uh, website addressed for the audio description page? Yeah, it's it's acb.org slash ADP,
2: Oh, acb.org slash ADP, and I don't, I believe that's, that's all of it. Yeah, I know how to get there, Um, but isn't that more specific to movies? yeah so no, no. there's there's everything on it now there's museums there's t v shows there's everything's oh. on there and wonderful. wonderful.
1: yeah and I will yes. tell you this one of the things that's challenging is because the way they, the that website works is that people have to self report and so for example if i I can send in a list of here's the audio description programs that I've put together, and I've sent the list in and but by, by the time somebody like goes to look at it the organization where I did the the audio tour 10 years ago, they're not running it anymore. All right. So the list, it's very hard to keep it updated. It's, um, it's not comprehensive. There are new people doing audio description all the time that might not be aware of this list. So it's the, it is the best thing going out there at this point for this more broader thing to look at, not just films and television, but also museums and performing arts centers and and things of that nature. Um, But it is, but always call and ask. I think it's always my question. If there's something in your area, if something you want to go see or go on their website or call them on the phone and, and just and check.
2: Well, I'm so glad to hear about the Holocaust because where I live, they're going to be doing a bus tour up to that when the COVID lets up.
1: Which, which Holocaust Museum is that? Because there's like one in, in Dallas. In, oh, in Dallas. Okay. The the one we did was Holocaust Museum Houston. Um, there's also Holocaust Museum in Dallas, and there's one in San Antonio. I don't know if Dallas or San Antonio have an audio described tour. Um, the one in Houston definitely does. Oh, okay. Well, I'll be sure to ask. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you, you tell them to call. tell them to call me or to tell them to call Houston, and they'll tell them to call me. <laughs> All
0: right. Well,
1: we only uh, have one no uh, other hand ring. I'm
0: sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm uh, sorry. Robert, were you going to say something? No, I just said, told her thank you. Oh, okay, great. Thank you very much. Well, I have to say this has been really, really enjoyable, and the time has just flown by. And I'd like to know though if anybody wants to get in touch with you, uh, Stacia. What is the easiest way that they might be able to get in touch with you?
1: Probably the easiest way is to, there's, well, two ways is like email or phone. So my email address, and this one's going to, I'll have to spell this one for everybody. It's my first name, Stacia, and that's spelled like Stasha, S-T-A-S-H-A, well, at Stacia, at Stacia. Q Media Productions and that's Q as in the letter Q Media Productions with an S dot com or to our phone number and that's 407-654-7067 and that's the main office number and you just push one to get to me There's really only two options. It's me or Mike, so yeah.
0: Okay. (laughs) Oh no. Thank you very, very much. This has really been very, very useful and I think it really gives us all an idea of what we want to do on our next vacation we 're going to go to your museums
1: <laughs> <laughs> well and dr Bell, I, I I just wanted to say something to you as well I because you know I do like to prepare for things that I go, and I had such an incredible time going to YouTube and watching your talks and watching you speak to to people your inspirational speeches inspired me and um, what a story, and thank you so much for telling it and sharing it and and for working on these things it 's There is so much richness in this world. I think you said that in one of your, uh, in one of the talks when you were like saying, you know, I've got to, I got to get up and do better. You're like, there's so much richness in this world and why am I missing out? And, um, that was an important thing to hear.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Gosh, thank you. That makes me feel very, very good. (laughs) But I'd also like to thank all of you who have called in. And joined us this, this evening, uh, Robert, we'd like to thank you for doing the recording, Christine for doing the organization, Leslie, and also we'd like to thank Dick Burden from
4: Ayers LA.